My name's Sally James. I'm a trade policy analyst at the Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. As a non-immigrant temporary alien worker, it is my special pleasure to moderate the first panel discussion of this conference on the economics and demographics of US immigration. I should have bought my visa for you to show you I'm legal. I assure you I am. In the special edition of the Cato Journal that inspired this conference, Brian Kaplan talked about the moral considerations relevant to immigration, and clearly immigration is a moral and political choice at some level. But the economics are important too. Uh, they certainly seem to drive much of the debate. When I, when I listen to the debate, and even though I don't work on it, um, you know, I, it's a little bit like a dog whistle for me when people talk about immigrants. I, my, my ears prick up, although often I get the impression they're not talking about Australians. Um, Anyway, the economics are important and, and, and they seem to drive a lot of the debate and the panel discussion this morning is going to cover those issues. Issues like what are the economic effects of immigration, what are its costs and what are the distributional effects? What do we know about the recent history of unauthorised immigration and attempts to deal with it? What would be the economic effects of a so-called amnesty for unauthorised workers already in the United States? And how will immigration policy uh, decisions today affect flows of illegal and illegal immigration in the future. Uh, joining us to discuss these and other issues are three distinguished experts on immigration and labour economics. Their full biographical details are available in your conference materials, so in order to maximise the time for discussion, I'll just allow, allow me to uh, introduce our panellists just briefly. Our first speaker will be Pierre Arrhenius, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Pierre is an Assistant Vice President and Senior Economist at the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas. Second, we'll hear from Ali Nurani, Executive Director of the National Immigration Forum. He'll be followed by our final speaker, Barry Chiswick, who is the Chair of the Economics Department at George Washington University. Uh, thank all of you. I'd like to thank all of you today uh, for, for joining us. We're thrilled, thrilled to have you here. Uh, Pia, I'll let you start these proceedings. How do I advance? Oh, that's, that was my, I think it's the other one. Oops. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah. yeah, there we go. Thanks. Oh. Great. Uh, well, uh, thank you for having me. Thank you to Cato for putting together uh, and inviting us, uh, my co-author and I, Madeline Zavani, to contribute to this uh, journal issue on immigration, which was... Uh, great experience and I encourage you to read the articles uh, certainly from uh, from experts in the field. Uh, also excited to be here for the conference today and excited to hear from my colleagues on this session and, and later sessions today. Um, being first uh, and on the panel on economics and demographics of immigration I thought I would, uh, would, would, would address sort of the most basic issues on the economics of immigration. Uh, and I think as we go, uh, my hope is that as I lay out this framework, we can use sort of some of these basic ideas to leverage the discussion on policy, um, uh, you know, later in the day. Basically, uh, for the roadmap, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about this demographics, the trends in migration, and then the benefits and costs of immigration, and certainly making the distinction between uh, gains and costs to migrants themselves and to natives. 
A uh, familiar chart, perhaps, the foreign-born population. Uh, by decade, uh, 1850 to present day, where I've broken out the last uh, four years of data. So uh, you can see that, obviously, the foreign-born population at 40 million is about, uh, is obviously the record uh, level in the United States. But as a share of the population, we're not at record shares. Um, those were reached about 100 years ago during the first Great Migration, uh, where the foreign-born were over 15% of the population. Uh, what's remarkable, though, two things about our more recent historical experience is that since about 1970, where the immigrant share reached a low of less than 5%, uh, what's remarkable is the rate of increase in immigration uh, since that time, and then also, more recently, the stagnation of immigration during the Great Recession. When we talk about the gains from migration, uh, I'd like to uh, just talk a little bit about what are the changes over the last century that have led to, to, to so much immigration, especially to, to Western Europe and, and North America. And the, the rise in global inequality, if you think of it from the migrants' perspective, is one of, uh, is illustrative of the potential gains to migration that, that, that the migrant, uh, you know, considers. Uh, upon migration. So this is simply a chart of GDP per capita over the last 200 years. We're looking across different countries in different regions of the world. And what's so remarkable about the 20th century is, uh, is this, this huge increase in global inequality. And this is also going to mean that the incentives for migration uh, are much greater now than they've, than they've ever been, perhaps. You see that, obviously, in the United States and Western Europe, GDP per capita rose uh, at very high levels, uh, at very high rates during the 20th century. You see that other countries lag behind. They're typically in, in Africa, for example, in Ghana, or a place like Haiti, where there has been no increase uh, in living standards for hundreds of years. Then there's latecomers, maybe like China, obviously growing very quickly now, Mexico, which is, is plodding along. So each country has had a different experience. GDP per capita, however, is not the right way or the best way to gauge the gains to migration. Um, what I'll show you next are uh, more careful estimates of the gains to migration to migrants from a Clemens, Montenegro, and Pritchett paper uh, from a few years ago called The Place Premium. They actually went in and estimated the actual wage gains for uh, hypothetical migrants from each region of the world. And then they did a purchasing power adjustment uh, to the wage gains so that we could compare in real terms. What are the true wage gains? For example, if you come from Nigeria. If you come from Nigeria, you're a man with 9 to 11 years of education, you realize about a 12-fold increase in your annual income by migrating to the United States, a gain of about $18,000 per year. If you have children, you know that gain would get, uh, the gain from your children also realizing uh, the benefits of growing up in the U.S. versus Nigeria, you can multiply uh, these gains times the number of children. For Haiti, if you're coming from Haiti, an 11-fold increase in your real income by coming to the United States. Egypt, a nine-fold increase. India, about a four-and-a-half-fold increase in your real income. Mexico, about a doubling of your income. Suffice to say the wage gains from immigration to the U.S. are quite significant. The rise in income in North America, in the United States, in Western Europe, and so forth, has come with technological progress, more than any other determinant over the last century. With technological progress has come the decline of blue-collar work. 
Uh, blue color work uh, in 1910, Madeline and I looked at this uh, for the annual report from the Dallas Fed last, uh, last year. We looked at 1910, we looked at the great, great majority of immigrants and natives were working in blue collar occupations, in production, in manufacturing, in agriculture, in construction, 100 years ago. Fast forward to today. Um, still a majority of the immigrants still work in blue collar occupations, about 54% but only about 38% of natives work in blue-collar occupations. So this is an important decline. I think it speaks to, uh, to many issues that come up in immigration. Integration, certainly. Is it harder to integrate into white-collar occupations? The importance of language skills, and also inequality. With the rise of technology, the rise in the skill premium, the increasing returns to education, we've also seen the natural response of the, of the population to become more educated. You saw the decline of blue-collar work, and the rise of white-collar work has meant that people have getting more education. That's happened over the century. But if we look just at the last 15 years in this chart, what we're looking at, the change in the workforce by education category, and I wanted to show it to you because it shows, say, between 1996 and 2009, in the red bars, you can see that the number of native-born workers with a bachelor degree or more grew by 10 million. If you look for the number of US-born workers with less than a high school degree, well, that fell by 2.4 million. What were the immigrants doing during this time? Well, about 3.5 million came uh, with a bachelor's degree or higher. And there was an increase uh, among immigrant workers also in the low educated categories of a high school degree and less than a high school degree. What you can see is that declines among less educated Americans are being made up for by increases among less educated immigrants. Um, this is going to be one of the reasons why it's difficult to find large adverse wage effects of low-skilled immigration. The immigration surplus, when it comes right down to it, this is sort of how we summarize uh, the benefits from immigration to natives. What is the rise in natives' incomes from immigration, and why does it happen? Well, the first thing that happens when you have immigration, prices fall of the goods and services that immigrants produce, and the return to land and to capital rise. Labor force grows, and over the last 15 years or so, immigrants have accounted for about one half of labor force growth. There are efficiency gains, which uh, are also written about in, this, in, in the Cato Journal issue on immigration um, by Giovanni Perry and others. Um, these lead to productivity increases. Why? Because immigrants complement native workers at high and low ends of the skill distribution. This leads to everyone being more efficient at their tasks. They fill jobs that natives shun. They move to where the jobs are, which actually has a big benefit if you look at uh, as geographic disparities in employment growth, unemployment and wages are reduced, the economy is more efficient, runs more efficiently, pro average productivity is higher, and you reduce labor market slack. And lastly, with high-skilled immigration, you obviously have a host of additional benefits that the research is showing um, uh, includes uh, innovation and, and entrepreneurship in certain industries. <clears throat> now, uh, there are certain drawbacks. No, my screen is going out here. Uh, there are certain drawbacks uh, uh, from the immigration surplus. From the immigration surplus, we have to subtract the fiscal impact. The fiscal impact, if there's an uh, there's a, obviously a positive fiscal impact from high skilled immigration and a negative fiscal impact from low skilled immigration. Just like low education, low wage native workers, um, low education and low wage immigrants are going to impose 
uh, negative fiscal impact. And there are labor market effects. Now, Madeline and I make the distinction that labor market effects are, are not a net cost necessarily that you deduct from the immigration surplus. Rather, labor market effects are, um, are a distributional effect, and it creates winners and losers in the economy. Um, and whereas that may not subtract from the immigration surplus, it does raise the political economy question. <clears throat> you can see that current policies uh, are, have led to sort of influxes uh, of immigrant workers in certain parts of the education distribution. Uh, here you can see that for those uh, workers with less than a high school degree, almost one half are foreign born. On the other extreme of the education distribution, you see that almost uh, about 27 to 28% of workers with a doctoral degree are, are immigrants. There are two different policies leading to these outcomes. One has been a lot of unauthorized immigration, obviously, and another has been you know, employment-based immigration policies that do tend to favor high-skilled immigrants. Immigrants go where the jobs are. I just wanted to sh make another, show you with data the point I was making about the mobility of immigrants and the correlation with, uh, with economic growth. This basically uh, plots by state the, the increase uh, in the foreign-born population and the correlation with uh, above-average economic growth. So states in the top right quadrant basically have above-average immigration and above-average economic growth. States in the bottom left quadrant have below-average immigration and below average economic growth. And the fact that the great majority of states are concentrated in these two quadrants show the correlation that's so important in terms of uh, immigration greasing the labor market. The other point I wanted to make that's important about immigration and its economic effects, you know, it's not just that they go to where the jobs are, but if there are no jobs, well, they don't come. This flexibility of the immigrant uh, workforce, if you can leverage it with a policy where you actually have a market-based immigration, uh, you can see the type, of, uh, the type of patterns that we've seen in Mexican immigration during the, during the recent housing bust and recession. This is a picture here of emigration estimated from the NOA data, so Mexican household survey data. It basically shows the steep, steep decline in Mexican immigration that began at the beginning of the housing bust in the United States, so early 2006. And this is sort of the, one of the ingredients of the recent report that came out about, wow, unauthorized immigration from Mexico looks like it's been zero over the last five years. Just to finish up, uh, the cost of migration, uh, I alluded to earlier, you know, the fiscal impact, um, the best study, uh, is still uh, this study from the National Research Council from 1997, so that's what I'm showing you here. Um, not because the numbers probably hold today, but because the relative fiscal impact of the education groups are probably still uh, about right. If you bring in an immigrant with a high school degree, he probably has uh, uh, about a, uh, a small negative uh, fiscal impact over his lifetime. If you bring in an immigrant with less than a high school degree, it's going to be a sizable negative fiscal impact over his lifetime. If you bring in high-skilled high immigrants, they obviously have a positive fiscal impact uh, in net present value terms over their lifetime. So you either need a good mix uh, of high-skilled and low-skilled uh, immigrants, um, or you need policies uh, that address the fiscal impact uh, in some way. And on distributional effects, 
um, I did just, I alluded to this earlier, but most studies do find a small, uh, but a negative effect on the wages of low-skilled natives. Why is it small? You know, the debate is still rages in the literature, but there are several reasons why it's difficult to identify these, uh, these adverse wage effects. First of all, immigrants are moving around and they're moving to where wages are rising. That's part of the benefit we discussed earlier about the benefits of immigration, uh, this, this geographic mobility and also sectoral mobility. Uh, it's also small because immigrants tend to be complements and not substitutes for native workers. And again, this is going to be coming up later in the policy discussion or what's wrong with the current system is that if you have a market-based immigration policy, you're going to be naturally feeding the complementary nature of, nat uh, of immigrant workers when it comes to natives. Um, if you don't have a market-based system, you're going to dilute uh, the complementary nature of the immigrant inflow. The other thing <clears throat> that happens is that immigrants come in and they shift out aggregate demand. I mean, they have their own needs. They're going to you know, uh, want to consume housing and other goods. And when they shift out aggregate demand, they further um, dilute any wage impact. And lastly, when you have more labor, you tend to get more capital again, because like I said earlier, the return to capital rises. So this is another factor that makes it difficult to to, to get a large adverse wage impact when you try to measure it with the data. What most studies find, though, and what economists seem to definitely agree on, is that whereas low-skilled immigrants do not seem to affect, to a great extent, the wages of low-skilled natives, they do tend to have a very large negative impact on the prior immigrants' wages. And so if you think of that prior immigrants are the most substitutable for new immigrants, I think that uh, makes uh, for a sensible reason for why this is the case. So to conclude, immigration generates positive economic benefits. Immigration is good for America, but it could be better for America. Um, why, uh, where do the positive economic benefits come from? Well, they're there. Immigrants realize most of the gains. We saw, uh, obviously, the income increases that they realize when they migrate to the United States. They take home the bulk of the income increases, uh, go to them themselves. Uh, but natives get the immigration surplus. Uh, and so that's important, too. But from the immigration surplus, we have to detract or subtract the fiscal impact when it comes to low-skilled immigration. And so that's another important consideration for policymakers uh, when you do uh, you think about what's the right immigration policy. So I think in the end, the conclusion has to be, you know, there are the economic benefits of immigration, there are the economic costs. But in the end, policies can be designed to enhance the benefits of immigration and mitigate, you know, some of these costs. And attention can be paid to the distributional effects as well. And I think that's probably where we're doing a poor job. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, well, first of all, I want to thank uh, Cato for pulling together this morning's, uh, today's great conference. It's uh, an important gathering of some incredibly uh, smart people, and um, personally, I'm just thrilled that you gave me a name tag. Um, the forum, you know, we, we, we think of being able to move immigration policy as a triangle. And there are three points on this triangle. There's research. There's politics, and then there's policy. And what's in the middle of that triangle? It's how we talk about immigrants and immigration. So I wanted to spend a little time 
proposing to you a way to talk about the value of immigrants and immigration. I mean, obviously, from this panel and the following panels, we're going to hear the data, we're going to hear the, the, the scientific reason why we need immigrants and immigration. But at the end of the day, our challenge is to explain it to policymakers, politicians, and the, general, and the American public. So for the elderly or someone battling cancer, for them, the skilled brain surgeon is just as important as a skilled home health care aide. But in America's current immigration debate, all the attention goes to the high-skill immigrant. It's easier for politicians, policymakers, and the public to wrap their heads around. But what I argue is that this narrowing of the debate runs the risk of actually undermining the value of work, and not just the value of work of immigrants, but the value of work of all Americans. It does so by creating a double-edged sword that separates the contributions of the high skill from the low skill, forming a very dangerous social and economic divide in our country. What we're going to hear, obviously, through the morning and through the day is about evidence of how this divide is being created. But recently, the Partnership for a New American Economy released what was an eye-opening study showing the importance of immigrant workers across the spectrum. From services to, from services to sciences, it is abundantly clear the immigrants will serve the economic interests of every American and their family are across the, skill, the, the range of skills. So yes, we need immigrant physicians and we need immigrant surgeons. But the study reveals that we also rely on immigrant home health aides, and healthcare is just one of many sectors the study homes in on, ranging from information technology to agriculture. But as long as this rhetorical divide exists between high and low skill, the long-term consequences in America that does not recognize the significance of skilled workers across the labor market. The linkage between hard work and the American dream, in essence, our national identity, will be strained. Whether our families came to America as doctors or ditch diggers, they immigrated because of our nation's belief that hard work creates the opportunity for respect, for wealth, and for success. Laws addressing the full range of our economy's needs made this a reality. In fact, you know, as Americans, we cherish the hard work of our immigrant ancestors, believing that some of the less admirable parts of our history as a nation will not be repeated. We look back at the days of Irish need not apply, for example, as a time of prejudice and hardship, when immigrants struggled for opportunities and eventually were rewarded for toiling in the most difficult of circumstances. Now, according to the census, we celebrate that people of Irish ancestry exceed the national average when it comes to holding a bachelor's degree or higher, and that these households headed by Irish Americans have a higher median income than households overall and lower rates of poverty. That's a long way from Irish need not apply. But in today's immigration debate, policymakers are quick to get to focus only on high-skill immigrants. Most ignore the importance of millions of immigrants working alongside Americans, picking our vegetables, cleaning our buildings, taking care of our, our, of our elderly. Slowly, admittedly, very, very, very slowly, America is getting back to work, with immigrants standing side by side with native-born workers. Not unlike the Irish, the Italian, or the German immigrants of the early 20th century, whose stories we are incredibly quick to celebrate. We must celebrate 
the stories of the Asians, the Latinos, and the African American immigrant, African immigrants as our source of a new American exceptionalism. Yes, the global economy challenges America's competitiveness and puts greater emphasis on high-wage workers with advanced degrees. The Bureau of Labor Statistics projects that professional and business services are expected to add 2.1 million jobs between 2008 and 2018. In the long term, improved training and education of native-born workers and youth will help meet this critical need. In the near term, we need improved immigration policies for workers with advanced degrees. But the facts also prove that our economy needs skilled workers again across the labor market. If we create different values for different workers, we weaken our economy and frankly, we block the journey from nanny to engineer for future generations. Again, according to the BLS, four of the top 10 sectors adding jobs between 2008 and 18 are in the healthcare and social assistance industries. Employment in the offices of physicians, home health care, services for the elderly, and persons with disabilities, and nursing care facilities is expected to grow again by 2 million jobs. All on top of reported labor shortages on farms and dairies across our uh, country today. So by ignoring the needs and contributions of industries and workers who require less education but just as much skill, policymakers are creating a gap in public understanding reducing the support for training and education of the current workforce, much less immigrants and immigration for our future. Rather than forging a new consensus on immigrants in America, policymakers take the path of least resistance and kick the can of rational immigration solutions down the road. Or even worse, as we learn every day, policymakers look to move legislation as such as E-Verify, which takes us down the path of a national ID card. Or, as some worry, just coming out of yesterday's Supreme Court arguments, the trajectory of the Arizona law also takes us down the path of a national identity card. So in the end, whether it's the BLS, the Partnership for New American Economy, Cato, anybody, any of the other research we're going to discuss today, it's very clear we need the skilled farm worker as much as we need the skilled engineer. As we age as a country, we will rely on the skilled home health care aid just as much as we rely on the talented surgeon. We are an exceptional country because we harness the best of America and recruit the hardest working from around the world. If we stop doing that, we'll stop being the America we know. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm pleased to be here. Uh, is immigration good for America? It's an important question. And one has to ask what characteristics of immigrants are good or better for America? And what are the consequences for the various segments of the American population? This is not a homogeneous. That's OK. Pens are cheap. This is not a, a homogeneous country, and the immigrant pool is not homogeneous. So we can ask these questions. And one of the questions that we can ask is about the size of the immigrant flow. About one million people get permanent resident alien status in the United States each year. 
although many of the people who become immigrants do go back to their countries of origin or go on to third countries. But let's ask the question, is one million large or small? And the answer is, that depends. You can tell I'm a professor. <laughs> one million per year is about the size of the flow during the peak decade in the early 20th century. So by that definition, one million is large. By another definition, one million is small because one million relative to the population, the current population of the United States, is a rate that's about one quarter of the rate that prevailed uh, in the early 20th century, the peak years in the early 20th century, the ratio of immigrants to total population was about four times what that ratio is today. In, in recent developments, as Pia showed very well, what we've seen is a bifurcation of the immigrant stream. We've seen a large increase in low-skilled immigrants, We've seen substantial increase, although not as large, at the high end of the skill distribution. And what we've seen is a disappearing middle, as those with 10 to uh, 13, 14 years of schooling, that's the group that has, that has shrunk. This large increase in non-English speaking, uh, low educated immigrants, has the effect of competing with the lower skilled US natives and earlier streams of low skilled immigrants. And this has the effect of decreasing the wages and employment opportunities of low skilled natives and low skilled previous immigrants. It also increases competition in the housing market. And we can think of a low income housing market and this large increase in low-skilled immigration has had the effect of raising prices, although recently it doesn't seem that prices have increased. And to the extent that we have minimum wages and other flaws in the wage structure, then we get the phenomenon of more difficulty for low-skilled workers to find jobs. One of the consequences of this is the rise in the inequality in income in the United States. And although there's a lot of talk about the 1% versus the 99%, even if you leave aside the 1%, what we've seen since the 1970s has been a large increase in inequality in the United States. It's not all due to immigration. I'm not blaming immigration. Low-skilled immigration for it. Uh, there's a number of reasons for the large increase in inequality, but low-skilled immigration has been one of several factors responsible. Uh, there's also a myth that uh, the US economy needs low-skilled immigrants, and yet parts of the country that don't have low-skilled immigrants seem to have their lawns mowed and 
the restaurant dishes do get washed in those areas. There are adjustments that take place in the absence of low-skilled immigration. We've seen a decline in border crossings from Mexico in recent years. And I think the most effective policy instrument that the United States has developed that has influenced that flow is running about a 9% unemployment rate. A 9% unemployment rate overall translates into a much higher unemployment rate or a much higher uh, difficulty in finding a job among low-skilled workers, and particularly among low-skilled workers who are recent entrants to the labor market. Now, clearly, we don't want to run an immigration policy that's based on a 9% unemployment rate. We would like to get that down to uh, levels much more like 4%. But if that's the case, then the prospects of low-skilled, non-English-speaking workers getting jobs in the US will increase substantially. And if that occurs, my forecast is that we'll see increased flows across the Mexican border. And just putting more Border Patrol agents on the border and building more and taller fences is not going to have a meaningful deterrent effect. You only get a meaningful deterrent effect when you have interior enforcement. Uh, and this requires some fundamental questions, because effective interior enforcement will, let's face it, involve national identity cards. And for other reasons, we are moving in that direction. Even if we could seal the border with Mexico, nobody could cross it, fences are too high, we have a border patrol agent every three feet, we wouldn't resolve the illegal immigrant issue because actually about half of unauthorized individuals in the United States are what we call visa abusers, people who came in under either legal visas or fraudulent visas who violated a condition of the visa, working on a tourist visa, overstaying the visa. And actually, if the border was sealed, more Mexicans would come to the United States as visa abusers. We don't like to think in terms of interior enforcement for various reasons, so we have to make a policy choice. Do we want to reduce unauthorized immigrants in the United States or not? And how serious are we about that? The uh, increase in high-skilled immigration, STEM workers, scientific, technical, engineering, and high-level management workers, has been impressive. And this has arisen in part through changes in the 1990 immigration law, and in part through various changes in uh, temporary visas. This has had a substantial beneficial effects for the American economy. They, sorry about getting 
little technical, they push out the production possibility curve. Translated into English, that means they make the American economy more efficient. They have the effect through invention and innovation and strong decision-making skills. They make the American workers writ large more productive. They make capital in the United States more productive. Another consequence of high-skilled immigration is that they have the effect of raising the productivity and the wages of low-skilled workers. So one of the nice side benefits of high-skilled immigration is that it has the effect of reducing inequality. And we are concerned about the growing inequality in the United States. And if we had an immigration policy that attracted more high-skilled workers, then what we would find is downward pressure on inequality. You know, people talk about the effects of STEM workers on Silicon Valley and on inventiveness in the United States. And that's absolutely true. The high-skilled immigrant inventors, scientific, technical world workers, high-skilled immigrants with entrepreneurial skills have been very important. Have been very important for advancing the technological change that we've all benefited from in the last few decades. The year is 2012. Why is the U.S. different from 1912? Why was there a general feeling, not universal, but a general feeling that low-skilled immigration was good in 2012, but yet reservations about low-skilled immigrants, I'm sorry, in 1912, but reservations about low-skilled immigration in 2012. The world of 1912 was actually very different from the world of 2012. And, and 1912 was really a great year because that's actually the year in which my uh, blue-collar ancestors came to this country. In 1912, there was a high demand for low-skilled workers in the manufacturing and mining sectors of the United States. And that's where my blue-collar ancestors got employment in manufacturing. Manufacturing that no longer exists uh, in the United States. We're in a situation in which low-skilled workers in the United States have been competing with lower-skilled workers in the emerging economies across the globe. And in that competition, the emerging economies across the globe have won out. And manufacturing jobs have decreased sharply in the United States, especially low-skilled manufacturing jobs. And yet we really do want these emerging economies to grow. Their economic growth, the rise in their prosperity, is good for them and good for us. But one of the important draws to the United States in 1912 was employment in sectors of the economy that were growing 
but which in 2012 are shrinking. Another important difference was that in 1912, if you came to the United States, if you couldn't make it, you had low income, tough luck. Maybe other family members will support you. Maybe your neighborhood church would help you out. And maybe you would go back. And in 1912, in the early 20th century, there was a very high rate of immigrants returning uh, to their origin. In 2012, we have a very different view about inequality. We feel that inequality is bad. We feel that helping those in economic distress is a good thing. And I agree that helping those in economic distress in the United States is a good thing. But that has implications for immigration policy. Uh, to what extent are resources being used to help support directly and indirectly uh, low-skilled immigrants and their, and their children and their use of medical care and their adverse effect on the economic opportunities of low-skilled natives and earlier waves of low-skilled immigrants who are still in the United States. There's actually been a very, very long history of the public officials in the United States encouraging the immigration of high-skilled workers. This goes back to colonial America, when the separate colonies would actually subsidize artisans, which were the high-skilled workers of those days, to come to the United States. And I think when we debate immigration issues and immigration policy, it's important to distinguish policies that attract high-skilled immigrants versus policies that attract low-skilled immigrants. And we have to decide what is the objective of our immigration policy. Currently, the focus of immigration policy is to whom are you related? The largest class of immigrants are those who come under family visas. I don't know of any other policy in this country in which we emphasize nepotism. To whom are you related? We generally think that's not the right way to do things. Yet, we also generally think that rewarding people on the basis of their talents, on their contributions to the American economy, is good. And we might want to give more thought to that dichotomy as we think through revisions in US immigration policy. Thank you very much.